It was the summer of 1980. Long, long stretch of highway. I was not even five years old then. I was in that huge car, that car that was so massive for this European. I'd never seen such huge cars. I was in the back seat with my brother, and it felt like I could jump all over the place, never touching the front seat. It was <laughs> first class before I even knew what first class was. They were so different. And suddenly, the car stops. The road is backed up. My father goes out and suddenly shouts, Quick, quick, get out, get out! My father loved the US. He spoke no word of English, but he loved the hope, the optimism, how everything was huge. And for me as a kid, everything was huge. Not only the car, but the ice creams and the smiles, the smiles that the people had when they were handing me those ice creams. How Disneyland was huge, how this manta ray in front of our house north of Miami was. It was a huge, huge manta ray. And that, that swimming pool, I must have jumped in that swimming pool a billion times. It felt massive. And now I'm on top of this car. My father just hold me. Look, look. There it was. Metal. Chrome. Shiny. It reflected the sun. It felt like lasers were beaming out. It was immense. It had that mysterious logo on its back. Was that the attraction my parents promised me and my brother? Wow. Wow. I mean, the back of it looked like a Formula One race car with huge ailerons. I had so many questions. Was that a rescue mission from another world? I mean, that spacecraft was carrying another spacecraft on its back. How is that possible? But my eyes were glued on the one below, the one that was landing. This massive 747, the shuttle carrier. I didn't know what it was, but it looked so damn cool. I only had eyes for it. This is when I fell in love with those flying machines. And I don't know if... It's because of that sight that I started remembering flights, or maybe it's just the age. My actual first memory of flying comes a few weeks later, perhaps month, where we were flying back to our home in Switzerland, in Geneva. My face was glued to the windows at that boarding gate. I believe it was Miami. I was looking at all those massive, colorful machines. And there was that one. That one had this black nose and the line was going through the entire length of the aircraft and at the very end there was this engine that sat below the tail and I was like is that a turbo engine is that something that allows the aircraft to go even faster I didn't know there was this massive triangle which design looked so science fictiony and I didn't know obviously it was Delta simply I can't recall if we boarded that I only remember that I've stayed hours watching it, probably actually a few seconds before my father pulled me to walk towards the actual gate. But that's still not my memory of being in an aircraft. That comes next. Probably Kennedy. I don't recall how we transfer there. I'm walking up that aisle of that massive, massive room. The seats are light gray, red, blue. The people have all these different colorful outfits. They speak so many different languages. I'm probably stumbling my way to the very back of the aircraft because I'm not looking at the aisle. And my father is probably pulling me to our seats. That was a 747. My memory tells me it was Varig. But I'm probably mistaken. I think it was Swiss Air. But yeah, my first memory of flying on an aircraft is the 747. And perhaps for some of you that are listening to this, it is too. This is when I fell in love with these wondrous, amazing flying machines. We're now in 1993. 
I'm hours and hours sat on that plane. When did we leave Frankfurt again? <sighs> and those scrappy earbuds. I felt like being my father. He was a surgeon, so having these earbuds that looked like a stethoscope. I can't recall the movie. Probably was forgettable, as always. But this is taking forever. I had no concept that a flight could take that long. And landing in Shanghai in 1993 was such a different experience. Perhaps it was Terminal 2. It had just opened. I just remember a crammed corridor with stairs. And he's shouting. I mean, really? My Swiss army knife? What the hell is he thinking? He won't steal it from me, right? But man, does his bomber's jacket look cool? He has that big dark-haired mullet. And he has Ray-Bans, not the aviator, the wayfarers. And he's shouting. And he has security everything on the back. And all my thoughts about why is he shouting are keeping them for myself. Because no matter if at 17 I'm towering him already, all I can think about, there's a rockabilly star shouting at me. I'm going to shut up. And he leaves me my Swiss army knife. It's my first time in Asia. And all I get is being shouted at in a cramped staircase. And I'm not even staying. This is just a layover. But guys in bomber's jackets look cool. I need to come back. Little did I know I had to wait until the early 2000s to do so. But right then, my mind is back to, wow, nine more hours to fly. Australia is really demanding. But hey, I'm in a time machine. Yes, a time machine. Until then, going east for me was coming back from the US to Europe. I'm actually going east for the first time. I didn't expect what it would be like living in Melbourne. But it was the best time ever. Mara, Nader, especially you Nader, you are a doctor. And right now, my mind is with you. But Melbourne for me... Besides loving everything about it back then, was when I fell in love with jet lag. Renato was the uncle of Mauro. He was a Chilean, had lived in Melbourne for a while with his family, and we were living at his house. And Renato, you're probably not listening to this, but I will always remember our long, late-night discussions. You must have been really patient with me, patient with my jet lag, but patient with my babbling, forever babbling until wee hours of the night. Because yeah, jet lag, it's night, but day, you feel alone, but never lonely, it's quiet, yeah, soothing, calm, I didn't have to wake up, I had time. This trip is when I fell in love with jet lag, going eastwards to faraway lands. Fast forward, September 9th, 1997. Obviously, I would remember that date. It was my birthday, and I was turning 22 in a plane. Yay, my first time, first birthday in a flight. But man, we're delayed. So with Laurent, my friend, we're reminiscing about our month and month spent in Costa Rica. That time we got stuck on the Tortuguero canals. We had to jump off the boat and push it through sandbanks when a million fishes were touching my feet and I didn't know what was where. What a country. That bus with no brakes on La Carretera de la Muerte. What an adventure. And that basketball game we had. Was it in Limon on the coast? I don't recall. They had told us that those guys were up to no good, but how cool they were. And we played. And yeah, I think I let them win. I was taller. I'd played basketball for a while, but <laughs> I didn't want to be clever. And that girl with incredible eyes that was trying to chat up with my Spanish. You know, our teacher, he was a Spanish teacher, but he was mostly a philosophy teacher at the university. And that's a language I had learned, philosophy, and not sure it would ever help me talking to that girl with incredible eyes, though. <laughs> and yeah, our friend knifed. 
Nine times. Shit. I mean, he went out to see that girl, so she was probably worth it, right? And sat there, waiting and waiting for the flight to take off. I was looking at the rich people section far away in the front and saying, this is where I sat, our friend, when he was evac'd. But nine times, that moment where we had to go to the hospital, waited hours and hours, not being sure if he would make it alive. My God, all that for a girl. We'll meet him when we get home. My father told me the surgery he did on him went well. Yes, the captain wants to see me? In the cockpit? What? No, what did you do? Captain, is it your birthday today as well? <laughs> Captain, pardon me? You want me to cut part of your jacket now? Your tie is already in pieces. I was even flying the aircraft. <laughs> no, I, I, I don't smoke cigars. But do you mind if I sit in a jump seat for a while? You'll teach me actual Spanish. Yeah, 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 Castellano. I know, it's Iberia. But you know what? No cigar, but I'll have a sip of that. Cheers. Enjoy your last flight. Happy birthday and happy retirement. This is when I fell in love with the people that work in travel. The machines, the adventures, and the people. We all have those stories. You have them all. Travel defines us. Defines us to the core. And obviously today, at the very end of March, I'm recording this on the 31st of March 2020, the week, the month where the world stopped traveling, well, it hurts us. It's a great pause. The world has shut down. Hello, everyone. Yeah, no music, no airport voice, no destination airport, no co-host, just me. Another monologue, a long one probably this time. No notes. Please forgive me if I rumble in all directions. And don't worry, Alex is fine. He's just learning to become a teacher. We all have to adapt to a new set of realities. The schools are closed. He's taking care of his kids. He's a great father, as you have no doubts. And I can assure you, we're all adapting to a life without travel, at least for a while. It's the most surreal time for everyone, for you, for us, for me. It feels like science fiction, yet it's real. And I wanted guys to check on you. How are you? Are you all right? How are you keeping up? Are you keeping healthy? Is your family well? If you're alone, are you not too anxious? Are you taking care of each other? These are not easy times. It's weird because I'm only talking to my microphone. I don't see any of you. The only sight I have today is my rather ravaged office. A, a power cut did fry half of my studio equipment and I had to remove it all and I only see cables. But I'm pretending I'm seeing all of you, that I'm saying hi. You know, I don't think I've said it enough, but it's a privilege that you're making me, you're making us by tuning in, by listening, by interacting with us. You know, I love radio because the voice of radio and podcasting is an offspring of radio, obviously, is like a companion. And I do not pretend to be a companion to any one of you, but you can listen with intent or you can just listen in the background. You can listen in full or just parts. Maybe some of you already stopped listening to this rambling of mine now. <laughs> You can listen whenever you want. You can listen at night, during the day. You can listen whilst you're doing your only authorized exercise per day, perhaps if you're in a lockdown. So thank you. Thank you for having listened to all these episodes and always being here with us and for us. I said companionship. It can be comforting as well. I don't know if my voice is of any comfort, but I really do appreciate you tuning in. You know, at episode 100... I was thinking, maybe I'll pack it in, maybe I'll stop. We've said everything that could be said. Of course, we're talking about news, but at some point, are we not repeating ourselves? 
And I continued for two reasons mainly. First, because I really love my interaction with Alex. It's always fun to be with my friend on this. Again, he's not here today, but don't worry. He's keeping fine. And for the precious interactions I have with all of you. We're just an entertainment podcast, a running commentary about a, the industry that we love. And obviously, we're hurting like everybody is when we see that not a single flight is in the sky. So again, I don't see you, but I hope you're well. I hope that people are kind with you, your partner, your family, your friends. And if you're alone, that you're coping well. And if you're in the travel industry, obviously, I'm thinking of you in any industry, really, as everybody is suffering. And especially if you're on the front lines, doctor and nurses in the healthcare systems that are working punishing hours to make sure that those sick can actually make it through. The vignettes I started with, the wonderful flying machines, the faraway lands, the people, is why I love travel so much. Uh, and, and I'm sure you have your own stories, and please share them with us if you'd like to. But this is not nostalgia. We will travel again. But it's also nice to reminisce about the lessons we learned. One for me is the discussion I was having on those jet-like nights with Renato, that Chilean uncle of my friend, 27 years ago when, when he was telling me that time seems to fly faster as we get old. And I thought I knew that in all of my 17 years old throve of knowledge. I hope I didn't lecture you on that too much, Renato. <laughs> because yeah, I didn't have to wake up. I had time. I had no money. And since then, I learned that all I do, all we do, is trying to buy time with money, retain time, augment time, pause time, to see those we love not grow too fast or disappear too quickly. I never had enough time. I believe I did. I always put life before anything else, but I wasn't that good. I've always been in such a hurry, my father would tell me. And yes, I can now buy extra comfort, I can buy fast tracks, but I can't come for time, nor slow track it. These discussions happened only once. You know, travel, air travel, guys, for me is not only about happy moments. In 2012, I was just landing back from Miami, I had been living in London for less than a month, come back from Heathrow, not even an hour at home, and I'm like, I, I need to go, I need to go, I need to go. Jump on a flight, land in Geneva, 10 p.m. My brother is waiting for me at the arrivals. We are over the hospital, and she had died. My mother had died at exactly 10 p.m., the time I actually had landed in Geneva. 2016, I'm buying my flight on my phone in the cab. I'm the first one to born, as I always do, probably. I said, saw that I booked myself one seat to be the first one to being able to leave the aircraft. I'm the first there sat waiting for everybody to board. And I feel, you know, the luggage is hitting my knee because, of course, again, I'm tall. And, and suddenly I, I take my baseball cap and I push it downwards. My brother had just written to me that my father died in front of him. And I forgot everything about that flight, flying or travel. The decisions I've made were not always happy and perhaps for you too. It's not always about good memories, but still, it connects us. It's still a far cry from when my father had to travel 52 hours from Switzerland to go back to see his parent in Greece. Flying stay is extraordinary. I don't think I ever wanted to be a pilot, by the way, but I always wanted to be a voyageur. And plane travel in the last 12 years, out of which five years I've shared some stories with you, were absolutely intense and non-stop. They became a shortcut 
for jumping in that canal to unstuck the boat, a shortcut to me playing basketball with those Costa Rican, a shortcut to seeking those late night discussions. Being a voyageur, as you know, guys, means seeing the world from above, escaping a narrow point of view, understanding that everyone is perhaps trying their best and that you don't really matter in the end, maybe. It's seeing the world from up close as well, but another, not yours, a window into a reality that is parallel to ours. They coexist, as we need to coexist. Strike that, we want to coexist. Being a voyageur also surely means understanding yourself, at least for me is perhaps what I'm trying to do. You know, I come from a family of immigrants. They left their countries for economical reasons, for civil war, the one that my father was experiencing after he had been through World War II. Their own parents on both sides were displaced by force, called refugees nowadays. And they always encouraged me to, to travel, to seek more, to find more, to be different, to understand differences. And probably, yeah, I also felt a bit guilty that I had it so good after my ancestors fought and had to live through all this pain to make me and my brother have such a good life. Seeing the world from above is also a promise. The world is beautiful, guys. It's crafted from what we built as humans to what nature grows. It's an addition of infinite details, infinite stories and forever memories. Seeing the world from above is also undeniably hopeful. Perhaps it's just a narrative, but I was able to grasp resilience, possibilities, futures by seeing the world from above. Seeing the world from above and from up close teaches you, taught me to be kind, kinder. This is what I want to focus on today, being kind, kinder, and understanding the possibilities. In the week, the month, the year, the world stopped traveling. Kindness is kind of what we got. You know, that there are years like you feel nothing is truly happening. Like a month seems to be lasting a year and it's on repeat. And then there are moments like the ones we're experiencing when you feel a year, a decade is crammed into a few weeks, a few days, and you're trying to hold on to something and it slips as soon as you try. It's dizzying. It's unsettling. And we are all coping in the way we can with everything that is suddenly thrown at us. We're resilient, but it's Goddamn insane. Again, feels like science fiction, yet is real. What, you, what you're listening now is not actually the first recording I did. I, I ditched quite a few before deciding to just go and record one in one go without any notes, which, forgive me, explains part of its convoluted flow. The first time I recorded this, two weeks ago, I started by saying, do not travel. And yeah, I know, it flies off the face of everything we're saying usually on this podcast and would have not be to the liking of many of you or still is not to the liking of some of you that I would say do not travel. I do believe sadly that yeah, do not travel. It's a logical step from what I'd said in 105. The domino effect, the on and on and on I was saying the domino effect was in place, the border closures, the airline groundings, do not travel. You will get stuck. Because that's what we do when we're afraid. We put up barriers. Do not travel. We are the ones traveling, not the virus. We are the ones infecting others, not the virus. We're not all going to die. We're not all going to die. But boy, no matter how much I had foreseen, I didn't expect this. I then recorded another one 10 days ago in which I said, this feels like the biggest musical chair game ever. Everyone is running back to base. And when the music stops, airports are shut, borders are shut, nobody moves. Well, this is where we are today almost. 
do not travels have been said by states the governments are calling for their nationals to come back home and they are no more flights so they are flying them back home the way they can with all their border closures the music has stopped but it's perhaps and that's why i ditched that the previous recording is is perhaps past using light fun analogies as i said earlier this is an entertainment podcast we run a commentary here we we have fun every two to three weeks we poke at airlines at passengers at airports it's light it's fun it's having a go at an industry that we love that we care about like having a go at an uncle who rambles all the effing time but whom deep within you love so much now Frankly, it's tougher to use light humor to discuss about all this. I I know friends that are in the hospital. Perhaps you do too. I know friends who lost parents and relatives. Perhaps you do too. I know friends who are apart from relatives who are in the hospital. They cannot see them. And perhaps you do too. Or simply people that feel totally lonely and lost. And surely you do too. And then I know friends who've lost their jobs. The industry we cover here, the airline industry and the travel industry at large, they're on the front lines of this, not the front lines of saving the people, that's the healthcare workers, but the front lines of being affected. It is, it is tough, it is hard, it is not a fun topic to cover. And I'm hoping I can find some kind of balance in the way I'm gonna talk about this in this very unscripted episode. And I'll say it, travel might never be the same. We might have just had a golden age of travel, the golden age of travel, and just didn't realize it. For now, no one is traveling. I'm counting at least 90 to 100 airlines that are fully grounded, including the likes of Emirates, including Ryanair, which is the biggest airline in Europe by passenger traffic and the fifth globally. And that's across all continents, whether it's like, I don't know, Philippine Airlines, Pakistan Airlines, Malta Air, South African Airways, Sunwing in the US, Uzbekistan Airways, Vistara, Saudia, HK Express, EasyJet, Brussels Airlines, Austrian, AirAsia, Tiger Air Australia. I don't know, the list goes on and on and on. You've seen all the images of all those aircrafts being parked in airports, over runways, over various facilities all over the world and being not used. This is, this is, I mean, I don't know how to describe this. I don't, I don't know how to describe this. We all, we all running out of words to describe what's going on. And then a lot more were like at two, three, four, five percent of usual capacity. And those are mostly to do repatriation out of what I said earlier, states organizing flights to, to try and bring home people that have been left stranded abroad. And even the US, as I said, tape delay. Hawaiian is already 90% grounded. American is 80%, but that's 90% internationally. Spirit is about 75 to 80%. WestJet is probably 75% and 100% internationally. As in Porter is fully grounded. United is 95% internationally and probably around 70, 75% domestic. JetBlue, probably 60% domestic. And only yesterday, on the 30th of March, the governor of Kentucky has basically banned out-of-state travel. So how long do we have until domestic travel starts to be grounded in the US? I, I just don't know. I just don't know how to describe it anymore. Fly Air New Zealand, who carries usually 50,000 passengers per day across a network, 
flew no more than 600 a few days ago. This is, I mean, I stopped counting. You might have actually seen that. I was very active through the layovers Twitter account at some point, like every 30 minutes announcing something. And then I stopped. First, there are people that are way better at doing this, are actually tracking all this and explaining all the news. But also because I wanted to keep my sanity, to be frank with you. Europe is closed. The US has put a travel ban to Europe and other countries. India is closed. South Africa is closed. Lockdowns everywhere. South Africa, actually, their lockdown includes the ban of alcohol sales. You cannot even have a glass of white wine while you're waiting at home. All these lockdowns, even China, who seemingly was in some kind of recovery, has banned foreigners from entering the country because they are afraid of a second wave. The super hubs that we always talk about, Singapore is closed. Singapore is doing pretty well inside, but they've closed transit passengers as well. Hong Kong has done the same. The UAE is fully closed. I mean, the rule books are out of the window and it's impossible to read. And uh, I don't want to buy into my own narrative and I find no satisfaction, but this is exactly what I had feared when I did this introduction in episode 105. It's on and on and on. And April tomorrow is the month where the world is fully stopped. Yes, I know summer lines are still flying a little bit, but come on. I mean, the loads are nil. The loads are nil. Just read what Ayata wrote this morning. There's nothing happening. The losses are massive and the oil price being done will not help save the airlines. Uh, at least some of these repatriation flights created some cool instances for AF geeks. I'll take two first. Australian Airlines flew its longest ever flight but it sent an aircraft from Vienna to Sydney. They had never flown that. So you see these weird occurrences that you can still for a few days track on your favorite uh, flight track app. Um, the, the one that stuck obviously is Air Tahiti Nui which with a 787 did a papete to Paris Direct. So usually they stop at LAX. But because there's a US travel ban, and Papete is an overseas uh, territory, it's a semi autonomous territory of France, it basically is a domestic flight. So they flew from Papete to Paris. That's what? 8,500 nautical miles. It's the longest flight ever. It's, it's longer than Singapore, Newark. It's insane. At least we get kind of that to keep a little bit of smile up. And these repatriation flights are super complex. Countries are under lockdown. They don't allow anyone to go out or anyone to come in. So there's heavy negotiations. We just learned here in the UK that yesterday the government released 75 million pounds to pay airlines to go grab people from abroad. I think some flights from Lima already happened, but there are people stranded all around. And even the countries, as I hinted with the super hubs, even the countries that we thought were all fine, like Taiwan, as closed for fears of another wave. Japan, the odd one out, not only cancelled the Olympics, told you guys, I mean, of course it's postponed to next summer, but that was obvious. And now the number are rising. Is it because we are ending the fiscal year now and they didn't want to see it before the end of the fiscal year? The reality is the governor of Tokyo was asking people not to get out this weekend and a lockdown is probable in the, in the coming days as well. And then everything down a chain of travel is actually hurting. The hotels obviously are empty everywhere, but then the ad revenue, if all these all these travel companies stop their ad spend and other companies stop their ad spend. So if you rely on advertising revenue, this is going down as well. The restaurants are closed. The bars are closed. Everything, everyone is shutting down. In a nutshell, there's nowhere to fly, nobody to fly, no reason to fly. The world is shut. And I know, I know, this, this show is usually only about aviation and travel. And I, and I will get there. But again, how are you coping? Uh, be kind to each other and be kind to yourself. We, we all have ways to cope, to differ. 
and they all are respectable in their own ways. And we're all, and that's very important, we all are different stages, depending on where you live, how much you've been affected, the decisions that happen around you that are out of your control. When you started feeling this, your experience is valid. As you know from 105, I was perhaps lucky to feel that coming early. So I went through a lot of the stages when I first started thinking about this, it was perhaps like 700 cases. Today, we're reaching almost a million cases in the globe. It's not a million death, guys. Again, we're not all going to die. And although I do that without notes, I want to thank uh, Alex Ostreicher and Michael and many others, actually, because you send me very kind messages about this recording and how some of you thought I was crazy and then changed your mind and how some of you you know, push back. I'm, I'm totally fine if you if you push back. Even today about some of the stuff I said, it's not because I was right once, it'll be right twice. You know, some of the stuff is only me trying to also process this a way to cope. And, and perhaps my only regret about 105 was that I should have been more alarming. I was trying to be, you know, entertaining at the same time and not being overly fear-mongering. I don't know. I, I didn't want to believe it either, probably. Like the scale. I mean, maybe I should have used this example. Take a calculator on your phone or on a calculator that is on your desk, if you happen to have one in front of you now. Go on. Do 1.4, multiply it by 1.4, by 1.4, 10 times, and see the number. That's the virality of the seasonal flu, the one that, oh, it's just a flu. And then take three, multiply it by three, by three, and also 10 times over. And look at the numbers. The numbers, the number of people you might infect. One of the biggest lessons is I've realized that people, and I'm including myself in that, we have no good grasp of exponential numbers, how fast this grows. We use words like exponential and logistic. I do use them all the time, but it's one thing to say it and one thing to actually realize how fast it's happening around us. We're not all going to die, but it seems nothing between 1.4 and 3, yet it's massive. My recording in 105, I was trying to be balanced. I was trying not to be that fear-mongering guy. I was trying to be the optimistic guy. I said it's a catastrophe, but then I wanted to lighten it up. Uh, and perhaps, or surely, actually, I didn't want to believe it myself. I'm like, come on, it can't be that. I I'm reminded of this interview that stuck with me a few years ago. There was, during 9-11, during the day of 9-11, there were two brothers, two French directors that were filming a documentary, I believe, about New York City. And they happened to be there when everything unfolded. They filmed, they filmed everything with our cameras, and we have daunting images thanks to them. And I remember clearly this interview late, years later where they said that the way they were able to cope and process with what was unfolding in front of their eyes is because they had cameras. So everything that was happening was filtered through the camera. They were looking at the tiny screen, the control screen on the camera. They were not looking at the horror behind it. They were looking at their screen. So they created this kind of bubble, this kind of filter. And this is what all of us, and at least I did, because for a while, I was reading about this. I was standing you it's a catastrophe. I was looking at the numbers. I was compulsively refreshing Twitter and watching television. And it was as if I was watching a movie. It was not happening to me. It was something that was happening. And I was looking at from outside, not living through it. And at some point it hit me. And it probably hit you as well. Or it is hitting you right now. Or will hit you shortly. Because you see friends losing their jobs. You're being in lockdown. We, we, there's 2.5 billion people right now that are in some sort of lockdown or quarantine or isolation around the world. It's, you know, so two weeks ago, 
when it hit me for me was just after the recording we made with Alex and 106, literally a day later. That that recording, by the way, was a little bit a beat because I was still in that, ah, well, maybe it's not that big or whatever. I was trying to convince myself. Well, my brother had the virus. Or he's fine. I'm going to front it. He's fine. He recovered. But suddenly it makes you very real. I went from this shock in mid, mid-January when I said, damn, this thing is truly serious, to denial, like, should I travel? Ah, oh, come on. I'm not risk averse. I get into stupid, risky situations on purpose when I travel. Come on, Paul. To guilt. Should I really travel? My gut tells me differently than my brain. That was that was when I was in Dubai, early February. And then bargaining. Ah, oh, come on. I'll do one last travel. That was just before I did my second uh, Dubai travel and I had canceled everything else. And then I went to anger. And this is what I see the most right now, the anger. Like, why everyone is so stupid? That happened to me. I mean, I was angry at people still traveling. I was angry at friends diminishing this. Oh, it's just a flu. I was angry at people, even until two weeks ago when I read people were still going on cruise ships. I was, what is wrong with you people, right? And and yeah, it's okay to be angry as well. It's a part of the ways of coping. So really be kind to yourself if you are angry. Angry at government decisions, angry at the airports for not closing, at uh, the airlines for not grounding faster, or angry at, at countries for taking what seemingly are like crazy decisions. You know, it's okay to be angry. But I was probably angry too much. At the same time, almost concurrently, I felt lonely. Perhaps you do too. It's, it's kind of a this depressive phase when I was like, why do I bother with all this? You know, I probably because it was early, I felt like very few people were seeing what I was seeing. And I was like, I must be completely stupid. And it was not about being right here. In my life, I never sought external validation. Thank you, mother, for, for giving me that strength. But it was more about this feeling of helplessness, of knowing that I have friends around me that have autoimmune diseases, friends that have been or are actually still in chemo. And trust me, I understand that both my parents to cancer. Uh, people are risk around me. And it was like, ah, come on, guys. I mean, be a little bit, do something more because I don't want these people to be hurt. It's not about me. Again, I'll be fine. I repeated that over and over. I mean, I don't know. Perhaps I won't be fine, actually. It's not that I'm going to die. Not that we all are going to die, but it felt lonely at times. And now I'm more, to be frank, into an acceptance phase. I can laugh about it and say, okay, well, all these memes that are going around and we exchange with multiple friends, some of you are included actually, and it's it's a way to cope as well, to make fun, light fun of the situation. Um, or reading stories like, for instance, I think there was uh, one of the Singapore Heathrow flights, the repatriation flights, they were passengers that were stealing the toilet paper. I mean, I could have been angry, but I was mostly laughing at it. I mean, the captain had to go on the PA and say, please return the toilet paper, guys. I mean, like, this is... I, it's I'm past I'm past being angry because I want to go through to a more of a reflective and reconstructive phase. I mean, it is what it is, right? I have no control and you probably have no control of what's happening around you. The governments are implementing lockdowns. The governments are telling you what to do. Of course, you can be unhappy about it or disagreeing with some of the actions they're doing, but you have very, very low control. So I believe, and I'm no therapist here, but I believe it's okay to to be a little bit light and to try to make the best out of this uh, situation. And I understand it's easy for me to say, I live in a big house, I have room, I have a garden, I can enjoy some sun because believe it or not, it's sunny actually in London. And though my business is affected, trust me, it is. 
it's yet at least not the end of the world. So obviously, I'm in a privileged situation that allows me to be less angry and more accepting of the situation. And some of you might not be. It can be abusive relationships. It can be bad family situations. It can be anxiety about the future of your job, or you might have already lost your job. And I know, again, a lot of friends who have. So it's, it's, it's no fun at all. I'll come to these bits about travel industry in a, in a bit too. So yeah. Be kind to yourself, never mind where you're standing right now. We have to work it through together. There's literally not a lot of other choices. We're not going to die. I'm, I'm thankful to be in a stage that is more uplifting, finally, thankfully. But this is damn tough. And I know the anxiety can wear you out and take a step back and, and understand that everyone, every one of us is a different stage of information. We're in a world of competing information on Facebook or news or television. And depending on where you are, what you're getting, you have no control. I'm no one to tell you how to cope. Just try to take care of yourself and each other and, and be kind to yourself and each other. You know, I was, I didn't become kinder to, to, to people that in the travel industry usually get me mad, the influencers. I, you know, I'm not a huge fan of influencers. And I see some stranded, actually, I have even friends of mine, digital nomads, who are stranded because there's no flights, there's no way of getting out, their visas are running out. They haven't paid taxes for years in a, in a single place because they've been drifting left and right. And, and, their, and their livelihood is probably destroyed as well. And now they're struggling. It's, it's no fun. I know people stranded at airports, at borders. Family members of mine actually have been stranded at borders. There's no coordination whatsoever. Every country does whatever they want on their own. There's no coordination. <laughs> I mean, it is not a fun time. So be kind, at least be kind to yourself and take a step back. Take a step back from your phone probably as well because there's a risk of spinning. I'm even kinder to these travel bloggers with, you know, the credit cards and everything. You know, if, if you've heard this show that I'm, even though I do not state it outwardly, I, I'm, I am not always a huge fan of those, but everybody needs to make a buck and it's okay that they continue to try to write stuff and have affiliate links. And I even, I, I'm even kind to people who worry about losing the loyalty status. I mean, of course, there's other things to, to be worried about in these times, but one way to cope is to, is to hang to normalcy, to, to, to pretend that nothing has changed. We know it's changing, but we all have our way to cope and accepting that change, whether it's temporary or not. So, so be kind. I'm not lashing out to anyone anymore. Again, we, we do it sometimes on this show because it's fun to poke at an industry we love. But here, people are suffering, and I, I want to be kind. And, and though I'm no one to tell you to be kind to, to people you may dislike in normal times, it helps you heal. It helps you be probably less anxious. I, I'm no therapist. Again, I'm, I'm not giving you any advice here. It's just a process as well for me by talking in front of that microphone to process these extraordinary, absolutely extraordinary times. I've, I've been, been kinder to all the spammers that keep writing me on, on LinkedIn for crying out loud. Everybody's working from home and suddenly LinkedIn is exploding even more than it is before. I mean, whatever, you know, again, I, I let it flow and perhaps you should too. Doesn't mean I've lost my moral compass. I mean, we, again, we all probably need to make a buck in times of hardships and some people more than others. It's true that in some of the app groups I'm parts of on WhatsApp and iMessage and everything, when I see some people trying to do like some shady distribution deals about masks or medical supplies, it leaves a rotten taste in my mouth, I will, I will admit it. Or when I see uh, 
you know my love for Japan when I see Gaikokujin's foreigners, young foreigners saying, oh, well, travel is cheap. Let's roam around Japan with trains and and visit this country. And I'm like, yeah, do you realize that Japan is is an elderly population that you might actually go and infect people that didn't ask for anything? I mean, yeah, I, I've not lost my moral compass. I'm not saying I want to be kind to every single one of the morons that are still acting out. But I'm trying because it makes my life easier whilst we are all stuck at home, at home. Sorry for the language. Stay the fuck home. And actually, I have specific people I'm thinking about that are still not respecting the rules. Just stay the fuck home. Come on, guys. You know exactly who you are. Stop spreading that thing. Stay the fuck home. Do not travel. For all the others, the key workers, essential workers, the guys in the front lines, thank you. The guys who see work and travel to help essential work to be happening, thank you. To the police, thank you. To the military, thank you so much for building all these hospitals here in London, in New York, or elsewhere in the world. To the grocery clerks or the pharmacists and all the people that are needed, thank you. But all the rest, stay the fuck home. And pardon language again, but stay the fuck home. The longer you don't respect the rules, the longer we'll have to get stuck for crying out loud. Stay at home. And that's the thing, at home. You know, where we're flying, we're in a metal tube and some people don't like it. You hear often Alex telling you how he wouldn't really like to be 17 hours on a London to Perth flight because that's way too long. So now we're going to be like, what, two, three, six months on lockdown in houses. I'll come to that with the implication for the travel industry later. But we're losing that season of agency. We're forced home. It's not a choice. I'm lucky because... I've built my company around this agility and this ability to be working from home and hotels. So I'm totally fine working from home. I'm used to it. I have a full-on office here. But it's not the case for everyone. Some people might not have the right infrastructure, might not have a great place to be at, might have, again, their job gone or at risk. The money is tight. So be kind. Be kind to yourself. Be kind to each other. And perhaps you're young. I know that some of the listeners are pretty young and it's your first crisis or it's even your first time losing a job. And it's not fun, especially if you work in travel. You know, look, you might have realized I never stated it. You might have realized that I don't really talk about my private life much. This is a rule that I've put to myself that I never talk about my private life, whether it's on the podcast, online, or on stage. I put a very big wall between me and what I project, what I talk about. But look, my life partner, my best friend, she works in travel, handles thousands of employees. I can see what's happening. It is hard. It will be hard. She's in good spirits. Don't worry. She's a fighter like I am. But be kind and be together. We haven't seen the big layoffs in general, actually, not only in the travel industry or the air travel, because Governments have thrown the rule book away and created plans like in a few days and finding ways for these layoffs not to happen. So you've heard about unpaid leave, furlough, which is basically the same thing that's happening all around the world. And depending on which country you're in, the governments, because they have to act so fast, are using processes that exist already. So you, you look at Germany or Switzerland, they're paying people to stay at work. So they're replacing the companies to pay the salary. So the people are still working. They might not be always work, but they're still working. In other countries, like here in the UK, they're paying for unpaid leave for the furlough. They're telling you, you're not working, but you're staying on the payroll of the company, of the airline, of the travel agent, of the handling company of the airport, but you're not working. 
government pays the company to pay you for not working, which is very different from the first case that I just mentioned, where it is the government pays you to keeping working. In other countries, they're attempting direct payments. I think that's uh, Sweden and perhaps the US will do a, a one-shot payment across the board. And in other is simply by unemployment benefits. And we know that the US being a quite lax market for labor laws, well, the layoffs will happen there first. And they have happened in the hotel industry. We have seen already like a lot of layoffs happening. Just look at the numbers of unemployment claims. These are record setting, more than 3 million, I think, in the space of a week or something. It's never seen. I said it would be the, the worst crisis since World War II. Well, actually, it turned out to be the worst crisis in 90 years because this could be actually worse than a Great Depression of the 30s. And I'm sorry, this is not about freaking you out or freaking myself out, actually. To be prepared is to be ready. And it's unfair because compared to many of the other crises we've experienced, this one is of no fault of yours. If you work in an airline and everything stops, I mean, you've done nothing wrong. Everything was working out correctly, no matter the details here, because now everything that we look back at in terms of the criticism we were giving about the airline industry, a lot of it is details. It's no fault of your own. So when I say step back, it's also step back because you're going to be freaking out about something that is completely out of your control. And I'm sorry to being directive towards you, but I'm seeing far too many people in the travel industry that I know very well that are having issues with mental health already. I don't want you to have that. And I'm no one to tell you what to do. So pardon the tone sometimes in this episode, again, completely off script. And when I say, you know, try to maybe step back off the phone, which is what I did, is because suddenly everybody is an expert. We have too much time on our hands. We're at home and everybody is a, is a virologist, epidemiologist, doctor, mask, no mask, and chloroquine and what's not, and the public health and course of actions and what we should do and what the numbers mean. <laughs> the other regret, the second regret about 105 is... I said, I'm no epidemiologist, but then I said, oh, maybe take a flu shot. I shouldn't have said that. It was me. I don't know. I was trying to find solutions probably myself. I shouldn't have said that because it's not even actually sure that this helps at all or even actually if it could worsen. So don't listen to any of medical advice from people that are not qualified. Listen to health experts. Listen to your doctor. Listen to your public health experts in whichever country you are because they will make mistakes, but they are trying. I still maintain that masks are maybe not a bad idea. I know the Czech Republic has mandated them. I wouldn't be surprised if other countries start to mandate them. They're not perfect, as I said in 105, but perhaps not a bad idea. But again, I'm no expert, so don't listen to me. Listen to the actual experts. And and don't freak out about the numbers, no matter if I mentioned some earlier, because still noisy. Every country counts differently. Would they count with their testing? The only thing you're going to achieve is freaking out because one curve is that and the other curve is this. I don't think it's actually that useful. Take a breath. At least I'm trying to take a breath. I know I speak fast as always and too long as always. And if you're still with me after me talking for like, what, an hour now, uh, thank you. And you know what? I'm even kind to governments. You know, I... Bad or good, it's almost now the time. I mean, yes, let's give them in check, into account. We shouldn't leave our guard down. But nobody, no leader is prepared to shut down their economy, to shoot their economy in the gut whilst asking everybody to stay home. Nobody is prepared to that. We should have been prepared. It's not a black swan. You know, the black swan theory, if you've done political science like I did, 
Pulsi at university, you know what it means. It's basically an unexpected event. This was not an unexpected event because we all knew it was coming, not only because of the recent smaller, probably pandemics, but simply because all the experts were telling us there were exercises being done in countries like rule books and plans. So it's, it's, it's a white swine. It's something we should have known. We just, you know, like humans are, we say, oh, whatever, it's never going to happen. We, we, we create this narrative in our head that it's not going to happen. And uh, even our prime minister here, Boris, has had the virus. Apparently, he's already cleared after three days. I don't understand how that works. But you know what? I'm not a huge fan. But then again, you know, I'm not wishing anyone to, to be sick. I'm not wishing any one of you to be sick. I'm not wishing any other leaders to be sick. I think it's very human to always believe that it's not going to happen to us. You know, we should have acted earlier. Well, yeah, well, every country did that. You know, every country, whether it's Europe seeing Italy, then other countries, now it's probably the US. And everybody seems to be smarter after the fact. Well, nobody really truly cared for a long time or thought that at least that it wouldn't happen. It is very human. It's sad, but it's very human. And we kind of need to accept this and be better prepared for the next time. Which leads me to another point. And I, I'm sorry because it's not only about aviation, but it includes travel. What, what is it all about that competition? My country does better than yours. My city does better than yours. Guys, I mean, is it useful that you go online and say, oh, if Sweden had done this, if the Netherlands had done this, if New York had done that, if the UK had done this, and like throwing that at people who live in these respective places, as if, again, these people have any possibility of controlling what's going on. It's out of their control. It's out of my control what the UK government decides here. I, I made some of my own decisions, but then again, so what would you throw that at people? It adds to anxiety. Just don't. It's a silly competition. Yes, probably they are. Countries that probably have taken better decisions than others, but throwing that at each other, maybe it's a way to cope, but is it really useful? Does it not just add like this is massive anxiety and creates actually more xenophobia and hatred for each other? I mean, don't you think that we all know already that our country perhaps should have done this or should have done that? I mean, we know, so please refrain. And the same with all the plans that are being thrown out. Oh, but you should save this airline. Oh, but you should have done with that with this airline. Oh, but you should have closed this airport. But no, you should have not closed this airport. Again, these are things that we can discuss and we will over time, obviously, including on this podcast, but I don't believe it's actually very useful to shout at each other, believing that X country, X company, X airline has done much better than the other and has reacted in a better way. Nobody is prepared to act in any of this. We should have been, maybe. I'm not here denying any of this. I'm just saying that it's probably not the best use of our breath, our time, and our energy right now. Take people to account. Let's assess what happened, what we should do. We're not all going to die right now. Let's concentrate on making that more people dying, probably. Because, yeah, we need to flatten that curve. You've heard the story about Italy. You're starting to hear them in New York. You've heard in some countries. It's spreading everywhere. Hospitals cannot cope. Healthcare systems are overrun. No surprise again. I said that in 105. I'm sorry. I'm gloating. No, I'm not. It's a war zone. That's what the healthcare workers are, are saying. I have friends in Italy, Greece, New York, and other places that are doctors and are telling me the stories directly. I don't want to diminish war here. My father went through it. Our friends went through it. You might have gone through war. War is, of course, very different. I'm here sat at home. There's no bombing over my head. So I don't want to compel apple to oranges, but it is tough. And it's not only the, the old people, because, of course, if the system is overrun, suddenly even younger people can be affected. I had friends of mine in their 30s who've been in the hospital for two weeks with respirators. It's no fun. And they didn't have any prior 
of course it's not going to kill us all and i keep repeating that but we cannot make it just worse by just pretending nothing is happening so it's basically one of the most serious diseases that we will face in our in our lifetime besides cancer so again we all are in our own state of worry let's not add but not being kind to each other we are travelers, we are voyagers, we, we're supposedly, as I said earlier, we're supposed to be seeing the world from above and understanding that, you know, everybody is trying their best, that the world is a small place, that we all have our corner and we try to make it work for each other. So let's, let's, let's be kind to each other. Which leads me to, of course, one of the other points, which going close to the industry. So should we save the economy or should we just save some people? Well, probably the primary reason for a government to exist is to save the people. And yes, a bad economy, an economical crisis kills some people too. We've seen that in numbers after 08. But here, if too many people start to die, we'll also see the economy grind to a halt. There will be mourning, there will be fear of infection, there will be a trauma, there might be even social unrest. It's not a pure let's save the economy versus let's save some people. We will fix this. I am convinced we will fix this. Yes, it will hurt some people, but we can fix the economy. That's what we do. We're resilient as human beings. We will fix this. We will kill that mofo virus and we will fix this. The sacrifices as a community have to be made on, on the way there. It's not an easy, I don't have the answer to that, but reminder, Western countries in general are old countries, as in a lot of people are old. And I know that some of you are listening from more emerging countries. They don't see that as much, but we are old. So when we say it only touches the elderly, when you have a, like a third of the people that are above 55 in the US, for instance, it's not like no one is going to die. There's a lot at stake here. Even someone like Bill Gates said that even if you were to pull off the brakes to try to save the economy, we'll end up anyway in a depressed economy. So I, I think it's a false economy. It's Again, I don't have all the here because yes it's true that staying in pure lockdowns for too long will hurt the economy we just said it airlines cannot fly hotels are closed bars and restaurants are closed again we don't have that much control i don't have the answers i mean guys i'm not that smart i just try to process a lot of my thoughts here probably in a bit of a convoluted uh, matter I don't like too big to fail, as you know, right? I believe we should save the people, and by saying save the people, that includes economically. And I believe that bailouts only sometimes kind of push the inevitable further down the road, including for airlines. But I'm a realist at the same time. And I want you to have your job if you work in an airline. And I'm not going to say like, oh, airlines shouldn't have a, a bailout or the travel industry shouldn't have any bailout. But at the same time, whether we like it or not, there is a certain backlash about giving a bailout to airlines. And people will say, oh, well, you put me like this tiny chair and you ask me for $200 to put my bag on the overhead bin. So now just deal with it. And also you already were bailout and you made so many profits and now you're not ready. Just deal with it. I'm not saying they're right. I'm saying these voices exist and they should be listened because we cannot just ditch them because we like to talk about aviation and we love aviation. We have to listen to other sides as well because they might actually influence the outcome here. One very good example that is often misunderstood is these shares buybacks that we've heard about in the US. When a company, when an airline makes money, it can keep it in the bank for later, investing back in the product, R&D, growth, anything. It can pay dividends to the investors. And again, shareholders are people that are taking a risk as well by actually investing in your company in an airline in that case. Or they can buy back shares. And shares buyback have been a focal point for people that criticize the airline in the past two weeks. Buybacks are not bad by definition because keeping just money laying around in a bank is not a very good use of the money always. 
We can discuss about whether or not some of the airlines must have had more cash than they have now, but it's also a good thing to reward the investors that are giving you their trust by investing in your company and buying shares of your company. So in a normal sense, shares buybacks, which is basically a way to say, okay, the company buys back shares off the market. And then if you have, let's say, $100 invested in United, that $100 becomes $110 simply by the fact that there are less shares around. So your share actually goes up almost automatically. That's a share buyback. The issue obviously is here is whether or not some of the airlines have used bailout money to do shares buybacks, which is a moral dilemma, let's be clear, and probably shouldn't happen with the current bailouts. We'll see if there's any rules attached to those. But they are also bad buybacks. One is to go into debt to do buybacks. So you, you you so want to see your share price go up that you buy into debt. And did American Airlines do that? Perhaps. And another very bad incentive, obviously, that a lot of the CEOs actually are incentivized on the share price. So they might actually want to see that share price going up so that they're making more money and they will actually either go to debt or use bailout money to do share buybacks over time, which is morally wrong. And this is why we you have these voices of dissent about whether or not the airlines or any actually industry should be bailed out. But it is going to happen. So Norwegian received some money. Will it be enough? I'm not sure. Finnair received, I think, 600 million uh, euros. The US airlines just got a big pack Package, uh, I think, of $50 billion, if I'm not mistaken. Singapore Airlines got uh, an injection from Temasek, which is the Singapore investing arm of $12 billion. So they will ride this out probably. Alitalia was, Alitalia, our beloved Alitalia, was, uh, was renationalized. Uh, we've done other plans. They're probably going to be a much smaller company at the outset of this. I think it will be decided next month because they're losing far too much money. I mean, have they never lost far too much money? <laughs> uh, it's going to be like a, a third of the size of the previous company. In the UK, there's no bailout and it displays uh, the complexity of the situation here. The UK believes, at least so far, that they gave money to everyone. There's a 700 billion package that has been released for every type of company, whether you're a small company, whether you're a bar, whether you're a hotel, whether you're an airline, you can follow as I said earlier, furlough your employees, keep them on your payroll. The government steps in for these unpaid leaves, which allows you to buy time to reduce your cost temporarily. And what they're saying is that airlines, like any other company in the UK, so that's Virgin, that's BA, etc., can actually enjoy the same benefits as any other. And they don't want, at least for the moment being, to do any type of specific type of financial injection to specific companies or specific industries, which I believe... It's fair because that crisis we're going through touches literally everyone. With Everyone is locked down. Some people, and I'm thankfully included, can work from home and still make some money while being at home. Some other factory workers or, again, everybody who works in the service industry or here in the travel, hotels, etc., they can't. So that's between 20 and 25% of SMEs that won't be able to survive April. The money might not be in by the end of April. They will not survive. SMEs, what constitutes the fabric of the UK, will not be able to survive until the end of April. I know Virgin Atlantic might not as well. And I get that you'd say, and I'd say, that maybe Virgin is more strategic. But do we know that? 
Do I know that? It's not only airlines. Everybody has a reason to be bailed out in the end, which leads to this other big conundrum that will actually happen at some point for, for the airlines and for the airline industry and the travel industry is that I'm not sure you can bail out everyone. There's a competition of bailouts. Who do you bail out? It's true. The airlines have been hit first, but now everybody is hit. It's the worst crisis in 90 years. And the entire economy is going down. It's not one specific industry that is going down. It's not two specific industries that are going down. It's literally everyone. There's there's some economists saying we're going to lose 20% of GDP on the quarter. 20% of GDP, that's every single one. Can governments actually help specific industries, in our case, the airlines? I'm not absolutely sure. Some have done us have given a few examples, and some will perhaps continue to do so. Some will add some, but some at some point will say maybe now, not anymore. We can't save everyone. There will be bailouts for everyone, take whatever you can within it. And that may very well lead to bankruptcies. I found some numbers. Ryanair has apparently 18 months of available cash. IAG, the parent company of Iberia and Vueling and BA, has 16 months. Though I've heard with other sources that BA only has three months of available cash, so being able to pay for what's happening. EasyJet has apparently 10 months available cash. Wizzair 8, Air France, KLM 3 to 6. Some say that KLM has more than Air France. Lufthansa 3 to 6 as well. Norwegian 1 to 2 at best, which is why I said earlier that, well, I'm not sure that even the help they gotten from the Norwegian government will be enough. The US balance sheets are better because the consolidation has happened earlier. We mentioned with Alex in the previous episode that consolidation in Europe will undoubtedly happen. Monstrous joint ventures will also probably happen. And they did in the US, which led to probably a market that is more solid overall. And they have made great profits over the last years. They have had very solid business models, very solid strategies, more time to weather this out. Now, bailout pending, 50 billion. How long does that make them survive? In the context of uncertainty about how long this whole crisis lasts, my belief is uh, 2020 is written off. And to the US specifically, I believe uh, American Airlines is the one that is most at risk. In North America, I think SkyWest probably is as well. Internationally, I don't have as many numbers, but that make a few educated guesses. Pakistan International Airlines is really in a bad shape. AirAsia X and uh, AirAsia Indonesia probably are as well. SpiceJet is not great. Avianca in Latin America is not great. Asiana got a bridge loan, but also is not looking amazing. Air France KLM in Europe, I mentioned earlier, is one with obviously Norwegian, as I said, but Air France KLM is probably at risk as well. And on the other uh, end of the spectrum, I said Ryanair is more than fine. Companies like Coppa or Air China should be fine, as is Indigo and EasyJet. As I mentioned just earlier, AirAsia parent seems to have cash to survive this a little while, but AirAsia is a complex uh, matter. Cathay Pacific should last, I guess, seven, eight months before uh, needing cash. Qantas probably four or five months. ANA, three, four months. Korean Air, three months, I'd say, before they need cash inflow. Uh, before I go on, the end result that you will listen to on, on this podcast will, will be without, uh, because I'll tighten it up, so it will be without me taking pauses and, uh, and exhaling. Because uh, at times when I say that, I say it fast because I want to maintain a, an episode that goes under two hours, but... Uh, it's not that I'm reaching for air, it's that I am 
baffled by the immensity of what's at stake here. It's 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 truly baffling. It's hard to grasp. And and finding the the right tone to say this all is also something I have been and I am still. You can see it in this uh, recording. Struggling. To find, uh, should I be a beat? Should I be very dramatic? Should I be in between? I'm trying to have a little bit of everything, and uh, I hope that I'm not creating more anxiety to some of you by 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 stating all this. Uh, these are facts, even though later on I will go to more projections. Uh, but uh, yeah, forgive me for an end product that will be tightened, that will have some cuts here and there because I've been babbling for too long. I hope you can still at least learn something. And please, as always, I don't need to tell you this. Feel free to disagree or bash me or give us a one star. No, please, no one star on iTunes. <laughs> uh, I hope I'm I'm clarifying some of the the things I'm I'm seeing uh, for you here. So back uh, to the to, to the industry beyond available cash beyond what they need to pay for the balance sheets. Some airlines have more aircrafts that they actually own, so not owned by lessers. And of course, these are assets that can act as guarantees for loans, which could give them extra runway, extra money to survive for a little bit longer. As an example, Ryanair has tons of aircrafts that they own directly, so they can actually ask banks and other investors to get financing for a longer time than, say, BA, who doesn't own that many aircrafts and will thus have a hard time finding collateral for loans. But again, I do believe that bailouts will happen uh, across the boards. For how long? Again, this is an ongoing debate that I'm having with myself on this recording. They will happen fast enough for everyone that's unsure. Some countries have, you know, invest in arms or sovereign funds that can help them faster. Uh, some airlines are within groups that could actually also be a, a help. If you if you were to ask me, and I'm asking myself the question because I'm doing all this by myself this time, which uh, regions would recover first? I would say that the internal market in China would come probably first. External borders might be closed, but the air travel market could be picking up first. And then Asia Pacific, not only because they seem to have had dealt with uh, this virus crisis better than Europe and the US, might see an uplift in air travel second, Australia, Australasia, so Australia, New Zealand might probably get the uplift of APAC, perhaps. Uh, the US, I know it's early because it's possible that domestic travel will see a grounding, but the US is a resilient market. They fire fast, but they hire fast. Bankrupt fast, but they rebound fast. I, I will never, ever dismiss the US uh, air travel market. It's always a solid market. The ME3 then, the ME3, if Asia is picking up, that could be helping them. Although as connectors, if Europe is still suffering, uh, there's a big question mark whether or not it actually makes sense, which uh, which then leads us to, to Europe. Europe probably actually would be the last to recover, would be one of the last to recover. Um, there's a clear danger out of the division of the EU, which could lead to a delay in the consolidation of the EU market. The Eurozone itself is having issues with the Euro that could collapse. I'm not here announcing that it will collapse, but it's going to be a, a tough one, which uh, will slow down the recovery. The Europe always has a tendency to be slow at recovering. You know, it helps the people better with universal healthcare and, and everything. So people 
people will fare better probably on their own as economies sometimes it lags behind. The test would maybe be uh, Air France KLM. It's a group that is across two different countries who right now have two very different approaches about how they, they see the virus. France is under a lockdown, Netherlands is with less stringent measures. What would be the end result there? Maybe that's the test with also the fact that uh, their cash situation is not amongst the best compared to Lufthansa, uh, for instance. Africa is, uh, pardon me, but all over the place. South African Airlines were suffering already. I'm not sure how the rebound will happen there. Ethiopian is an unknown. If the world economy suffers, will they be able to rebound? It's a very unknown. And LATAM, to be frank, I, I don't know the market well enough to make any guess. It's a wild card for me. It's also too early because we haven't truly seen the effect on the virus in Latin America, uh, Africa so far. Not that it's not happening, not that they're not handling it well, but we simply don't have, or I don't have, enough of a consolidated view to make any guesses. But there you go, that's my ranking. But let's, but let's go back to bailouts, because these are probably the make or break for the entire air travel industry. The new Boeing CEO, Kowloon, said, oh, well, they will refuse the government intervention if it means that the government has any say in the company and they will look for alternative financing options. Well, then, okay, you're basically saying you don't need a bailout. I doubt he's actually saying that. Of course, all corporates, whether it's Boeing or the airlines, would like to not have the government meddling with their decisions. But at some point, it actually will happen because in some countries, and that was very stark in the UK, Boris Johnson, when he announced the first First, financial measures to help the economy said, last time we saved the bankers, this time we will save the people. That's a clear message. A lot of countries realize that some of the stuff that they've done in 2008 to reduce the impact of the crisis might have been too much on the corporate side and this time want to save the people, which means for the travel industry that I don't know how this will play out. Will they get bailouts in the first place, as I said? And when they get bailouts, how many strings will be attached, which is what a Boeing's CEO, new CEO Kalun is refusing. He's saying, no, 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 we don't want the government to meddle. We'd rather have anyone else financing us. Okay, so if you have anyone else, just go for it, man. I mean, you don't need the government bailout if you have an alternative source of financing. Just saying. But stick to your guns if that's your vision of leadership. Masks are off, as in every crisis. Some people run to the exits, some people become insufferable, some people are true leaders. And if I refocus on the airline industry, we've seen Sir Tim Clark, when they announced all the efforts that were asked by the employees, said, I'm going to take a 100% pay cut. The chief of Dinata, the handling company, parent of Emirates, also took a 100% pay cut. Willie Walsh, who's decided to stay at the helm of IAG, was supposed to retire, but because of the crisis staying, he's taking a 20% pay cut. Alex Rose, PA? No, he doesn't want to take a pay cut. I mean, come on, really? And the founder of EasyJazz getting dividends right now, like uh, tens of billions of pounds of dividends in a time of crisis like this? Really? Mm. Leading by example is if you're asking all your employees to make sacrifices, I believe you should also make some sacrifices. So Alex Cruz, I'm sorry, but there's probably a reason why you're not going to become the head of IAG. And by the way, guys, stop idolizing CEOs and other business leaders. Yeah, you can admire their business acumen and sometimes even their ruthless business acumen without revering them and thinking they are some superheroes or idols, you know? Way too many people just drool at every mention of these names. I think that's, that's a weakness. 
my heroes are not founders hiding on fancy islands. My heroes are the frontline people, the doctors, the nurses, the people who are actually doing shit today, right? And some of you guys who are still working and listening to this, thank you again. These are the heroes, not drinking martinis in Monaco. Look, I do admire business leaders. Don't misunderstand me. This is not like cheap populism. But hey, at a time when we will all have to pay for the massive debt created by the justified help that we're giving to all these companies, including the airlines, don't be surprised that the tide is turning against those who dodge taxes. It's not an anti-reach stance, just that, well, somebody will have to pay the tax bill. And and really, 2008 was a dry run compared to this, guys. Uh, but enough of my rant. I'm, I'm sorry. I, I, I keep like just going off script all the time. I mean, there's no script in the first place. Uh, let's go back to, to some more industry numbers. So for this coming quarter, IATA is expecting the industry to face a $40 billion loss. This number came out this morning as a matter of a comparison. In 2019, last year, the airlines made a $7 billion profit for the quarter. $40 billion, four zero, $40 billion loss. And that's before, that's before an estimated $35 billion price tag of ticket refunds. So you've seen the stories. On BA, if you're trying to cancel a flight that you were supposed to take, it's impossible to get a cash refund. I think if you call, you might get it. United is apparently doing exactly the same. And I, and I get it if I'm on the airline side because, you know, you're scrambling for cash. You're like, we have X month of runway or X month of survival cash, we need to have as much cash as we can right now and not giving it back to the customers. Yeah, because you need to pay the balances. On the other hand, if everybody's crashing, people are losing their jobs now, and that $200, $300, $1,000, they don't want a freaking voucher. They want their money now. That's their livelihood. That's not being able to pay the rent at the end of the month. This is... I, I have a hard time picking a side here because, of course, you're expecting me to be pro-airline because I'm doing an aviation show. But at the same time, I understand the people, especially in Europe, when you have actual regulations that the airline is actually flouting. I've heard that some countries like the Netherlands have actually changed the rules, but it will trickle down the line in people, you know, not liking the brands as they do. Again, the masks are off. And, and I understand if you're, you yourself are working in an airline, you're like, Paul, shut up now. And I get it because I want you to keep your job. But I also have friends of mine that I are struggling for cash right now. I cannot pay their rent. And I also want them to get their refund in cash right now. And I cannot reconcile these two sides. I don't know who to save, which comes back to the point I was saying earlier. Who are you saving? Can the government save everyone in this extraordinary time? You know, basically, it all boils down to a timeline. How long will this crisis go for? How long will this virus affect us? I have no idea. My timeline in my own head has been set now for two months on an 18-month timeline. That doesn't mean that doesn't mean 18 months in confinement or 18 months in lockdown. That means that a full crisis will take 18 to even 24 months. As a pure lockdown, I believe it's three months at least. But I'm betting it could be six. I, I'm betting we could have heavy restrictions on how we can move around within our own environments around our homes for up to six months. That means you cannot travel for six months. That means that the airlines I mentioned earlier that only have two to three to four months of cash are out unless they're getting indeed a bailout. And obviously that trickles down, that dominoes down to aircraft manufacturers, OEMs, seat manufacturers, etc. 
the travel industry in general, OTAs, boutique travel agents, the events industry, mice, etc., the hotels, all the leisure industry, and so on and so forth. And the longer it goes on, the more lasting the effects on travel will be felt, which is why I wrote and I got a lot of backlash about that. I wrote on Twitter the other day. I'm just going to quote it here. Reading about people planning international travel for the summer, sweet but total delusion. International travel will not come back, not this summer, not this year. There's no back. It won't be the same for a very, very long time, if ever. Look, I want to make this clear. This is not what I wish on the industry. When I'm saying it could be the end of a golden age and we didn't see it, isn't that I want it to be the end of the golden age? For crying out loud, I'm so happy to have been able to fly low cost and high cost and everything, crisscrossing the world for all those years. I'm just trying to lay out my understanding of a current reality. I do not wish that. I really hope we can crush this and be exactly like before. I just do not think that we can go back. After a crisis, we never go back. We go further we go ahead and maybe that head would be better i hope so i truly hope so i i don't want any of you especially those who are working in the airline industry aviation industry the travel industry to believe that i'm saying that out of any spite or any negativity but perhaps the last 10 to 15 years of massive growth will not be matched for a very long time if ever we will travel with a new set of market rules a new set of realities yet to be defined that's what i'm thinking right now again it's all about the timeline you know in my line of work what i do is i take trend lines that are existing and i'm trying to see where are they going i'm just you draw a trend line and say is it accelerating is it slowing down is it like super accelerating you draw them forward it's never a perfect exercise because you cannot tell the future the future always stays the future right it's always in the future (laughs) but it can't go back i don't believe it actually goes back it evolves as i said earlier my timeline is 18 months, perhaps 24, but 18 months. In the UK, I believe we might be under some kind of lockdown for the next six months. In the US, now it's, I think, at the end of May or something. It might actually be longer in your respective other countries. I don't know what's the situation exactly. It's so hard to track all of them. I mean, even IATA and other websites that were trying to track all the information about the, the airport closures and border closures were overwhelmed, always lagging behind. I see it, this virus situation, as waves. We're going to waves. Right now, we're trying to contain, to flatten the curve. You've heard that term so many times. I don't need to explain it. At some point, we'll relax the rules. But you know, this virus is like guerrilla warfare. Not to diminish guerrilla warfare here, but it's like guerrilla warfare because the virus is just going to sit us out. It will circulate quietly among households. And as soon as you relax the rules, boom, it goes off again. That's the big risk, which is why we might see these types of shutting down, relaxing the rules, restricting the rules, relaxing the rules, restricting the rules with an immense, obviously an immense impact on the travel industry. And this is just by looking at what's happening in most of the countries, they are under shutdown. Very few countries have used other techniques, South Korea as, Taiwan as, Singapore as... Yes, we will learn from each other and we will at some point become better at it. But right now, for the short term, what I believe to be the next three months, the reality is shutdowns, restrictions on movement. I hope that other measures will be put in place before that end of this first cycle of three months. I have my doubts. But again, I hope to be wrong on this one. Especially, it's not because I'm an optimist, especially for one of our biggest qualities as humans is 
imagination, invention, this possibility of the future, we might be beating the odds and actually finding new ways in these three months. I really, really, really hope so. But, but let's put that aside to not build the narrative on hope and try to understand what does that mean. It means the recession is clearly here. We're not seeing the layoffs, as I said, because governments have put basically the whole thing on a, some sort of stasis by saying, okay, we are paying your employees for the moment. That just is sadly probably pushing the layoffs to later because I don't think it's going to be resolved in three months. And aviation in particular is a growth-led entry. If there's no growth, there's sadly no way. There's not going to be a downsizing of the industry. Delta, Delta CEO said that he's projecting that Delta will be a different type of airline out of this. It will be smaller, it will be not as many destinations, not as many aircrafts. Delta is a massive airline that have been very successful in the past 10 years. They know what they're doing, where they do strategy. He's not an idiot. He's not trying to scare us. He's just trying to prepare us for the future. And I believe that will be the future for many, many, many airlines, at least those that will be still around when this is when this is over. So who survived this after three months? We don't know. The bailouts, we have some idea, but we don't know. Which of the airlines, especially in Europe, again, and I know that I'm repeating myself from what I said earlier, but again, because the market is so fragmented, we're talking about joint ventures and consolidation. I mean, we've seen the cracks in the Air France KLM joint venture. Will the airline of one country accept that the airline of another country takes over or does a JV or has a majority stake or has a different set of rules? No matter the EU, and that's going to be the same in Asia and other regions. It's easy to talk about consolidation. The US was and is a big market which allowed for some consolidation that is happening in China as well. This reality is not the same in other more fragmented places, especially in Europe. So we don't know, and I don't know how long, as I said, will the bailout cover? If the bailout's only for six months and then the crisis is still going, will every airline be able to survive? And then it goes on to the entire industry, who buys aircrafts. I doubt anyone will buy any aircraft in 2020, which trickles down to lessers who own a lot of aircrafts, to OEMs, to the entire supply chain of aircraft manufacturers, of course, Boeing and Airbus, but everywhere for the seat makers to the engine makers, this is a huge trickle-down effect. It's a growth-led industry. Again, it's going to hurt. And generally, if the entire economy goes down, downsizes, who's going to buy tickets? I mean, the, the corporates are flying their, their executives crisscrossing countries. They're not going to buy as many tickets as they used to if the economy is down. And then we're all working from home. We're living through the biggest A-B test testing of working from home. You know, flexible work, working from home, all these terms. Of course, some companies were doing them, some others were just talking about it. Now, everybody is forced to do it. And the more this drags on, let's say six, 12 months, companies will maybe say, oh, actually, you know what? We're able to sustain the business without having offices or without having that many offices as we used to. Perhaps they will realize that, oh, well, you know what? We don't really need all that travel that we used to do, that we used to need before. It's not only about the direct economic impact of a downsizing of the economy, it could be also the realization that no matter the economy, 
maybe you don't need to travel as much because you realize, maybe I'm wrong, maybe they will realize that it's crap and that it's better to actually see it face-to-face. And I believe there's a huge plus of seeing people face-to-face. I've got my biggest contract ever in my company a few years ago by having a drink at a reception with a dude whom I didn't realize who he was. And we were talking about Nigeria for 30 minutes until I get a phone call from his team a few weeks later and I got my biggest contract because I met this person face-to-face. That could have never have happened over Zoom. But still, maybe not all the travels are necessary. Maybe we will all realize that we need less travel. And then tourism, obviously, that will be different because people will still want to visit other places. They will still want to go and see the world or simply take a few days off on an island or on a beach. That won't change. But at least for the beginning, because of the downsizing of the economy, people might not have the money to go travel and the travel will be down. So you add all this together, you perhaps have an effect that lasts for a long time. And then where can you fly? And what if you can't fly in as many places as before? And it's not about airlines having disappeared and thus having less destinations of choice. It's simply that we're currently living in a very asynchronous times. I keep mentioning this tape delay, but a tape delay is now also decisioning tape delay. And we clearly are seeing that countries are taking some measures that are similar, but some are not which could lead to three to six months, 12 months, 18 months could be the timing where we have a vaccine so that could change. In the meanwhile, we could have countries that say, well, we'll declare zones. So if you are, let's say, Singapore, and here I'm just making this up, if you're Singapore, currently closed because they're afraid of waves coming from outside, they're afraid of infections coming from abroad. They say, okay, we reopen Singapore, but we only reopen Singapore to places that are certified not having high infection rates. So that means if your country is still in crisis with the virus, you might not have the authorization to travel there, simply. So there might be like green zones, yellow zones, and red zones. A green zone is like you can travel to a green zone to another green zone. A red zone, you cannot travel or you're out. A yellow zone is in between. So you still have a crisis, but it's on the way down. So we're going to have like more hassles for you. We're going to make like China did before closing the border. With words, these crazy images of, of people flying from London to China. A lot of Chinese nationals wanting to go back to China to avoid a potential crisis that is happening here in the UK. They were flying in <laughs> Cathay Pacific in full protective gear. It was like out of a sci-fi movie, really. But... The point is not that. The point is when you arrived in China in airports, you went through a clearance of six to eight hours. They were considering the UK as a yellow zone. So it's dangerous. We don't want to bring the virus in. So they made checks. They made temperature checks. They made rapid testing. And then they declared you, oh, you need to self-isolate for 14 days at home. No, we're going to isolate you in a facility, a hotel usually, for 14 days. Or we're going to send you directly to a clinic. Imagine that. Will you actually first say, oh, do I want to go to an airport? especially as a tourist, where I will have to go through eight hours of clearance. And then maybe they'll ask me to then go to 14 days of quarantine. Maybe not. Or maybe, maybe, actually, maybe the, I don't know, uh, Maldives could say, oh, here's a hotel. For 14 days, you're locked down in your own private villa with a swimming pool and a beach. So yeah, probably that that would work. (laughs) I don't know. But but this is a trend that we're actually seeing. You've heard Donald Trump, your president in the U.S., guys, that basically said that. He said he might lock down parts of the U.S. and other not. This is that. This is the red zones. 
the green zones and if you are from a green zone you can travel and if you are from a red zone you can't no matter if that will happen if is it constitutional or not andrew cromo agrees or not these rules might happen especially internationally some countries will say we want to reopen to international travel but we will limit who actually gets in depending on the country so travel will have more friction it will be more difficult or and could be both who gets to travel so Germany and the UK are both currently mulling plans with testing ramping up. Germany says that you had it, you've tested, you've recovered, you can go back to society, meaning that you are cleared basically to go back to your normal life, which creates, by the way, a big ethical problem because people who didn't have it of no fault of their own. Maybe they stayed home even before the orders were given and they were very careful of not getting it. And then they're being told, oh, well, too bad. You didn't have it, so you have to stay at home now and you cannot go back to normalcy, which is so unfair. It's a true prisoner's dilemma right here because I don't think I had it. I mean, I will know eventually because the UK wants to do the same. They will tell me, Paul, because you didn't have it, you have to stay home. Okay, so I can't go to see any clients. If the client says, Paul, we need you at this meeting next week, well, sorry, but I don't have the certification to go. So maybe they like me, they'll keep me, or maybe they'll go for another Paul that had it and can actually show up to the meeting. And that's not the worst because it could be I'm an employee of a company and my company says, oh, well, you cannot come back to work. Well, perhaps we should hire somebody who already had it. So the incentive here is to get it. Am I right? But I mean, I get what the governments are trying to do. They're trying to save the economy. So they're going to try to fast track some people back to normalcy. The same will apply, obviously, for travel then. Of course, this implies that that your body has built some immunity having added. I'm no scientist to judge if that's the case or not, if you can have it a second time or not. But the plans are in motion, creating some kind of a pardon the wording here, immunity apartheid. If you had it and you're immune, well, you can go back to work, you can travel. If you haven't had it, too bad, wait for the vaccine. So for 18 months, we'll have like different communities because right now we're taking care of the not yet ill and the ill and we're trying to flatten the curve to save the ill and hopefully having the not yet ill not overload the system but at some point we'll have to take care with the three groups the not yet ill the ill and the recovered and the recovered might be ahead of the curve it's unfair for the not yet ill that might be told to stay home and not travel but maybe the recovered will be able to travel i'm maybe making this up maybe it's science fiction but the plans are in motion. Now, now, please do not construct that as a call for you to get the, the virus because you want to be fast-tracked. Although some people actually might understand that. I, I would never actually recommend anyone to get the virus for crying out loud. This is not what I'm saying and I will never say that. Anyway, everybody is locked down. These plans are not in place. We're not even sure they're going to be in place like that. Plus, where would you get it? Do you ask people to cough in your face? So it won't change anything if you have it. We don't know again, and I want to repeat that. The immunity theory hasn't been proven yet. We don't know if the virus mutates at which speed it mutates. The effects post-recovery are uncertain. There's been some reports telling that some patients have been having a pulmonary capacity reduction of up to 20 to 30%, meaning that running or simply going up the stairs becomes difficult, and I like my running. And simply, if you try to have it now, you might have complications, which are 
clearly no fun and you'll end up in a overloaded hospital system with no ability to perhaps recover well as everybody is overwhelmed so to do not do not do not do not do not i'm repeating do not try to get it this is not a call for you to get it but the plans the plans these plans are in motion it's not science fiction here these plans are being discussed at high level at least in two governments and i understand it so now add that to what i just said before with the green zones or yellow zones and the red zones they could be personalized push a trend line another trend line personalization of travel api advanced passenger information and eta electronic travel authorization the last one eta it's already there for many countries it's coming online for the eu japan and other countries russia for instance apis are already there so you have already some kind of traceability of where you've been so probably you can have that built into the eta oh you've been to this country we don't want you or and you could have within the eta within that authorization of travel which is not a visa but almost a visa to say okay you need to prove us that you've been recovered this country would say you can only come if you can certify that you've not had the virus certified of not being ill if that's possible because we know there's a lot of asymptomatic cases or to that apartheid i was just mentioning before if you've recovered you can come, we give you the electronic authorization of travel. Is that, is, that, is that really science fiction? I'm not sure. It adds to the friction of travel. So not everybody will be able to travel, not only not to all the destinations, but also within a destination, not everybody could actually travel. Let's push it even forward. We say data tracking, GDPR is already going out of the window here in Europe. They could require some kind of access to phone geolocalization, either for your past geolocalization, where have you been in the past 14 days? We know that in some countries, so Switzerland, for instance, they locate anonymized phone data to see if there are clusters of people. They just want to avoid gatherings. What prevents any state to say, we want to make sure where you've been in the past 14 days, but this is certified by your smartphone. So you have to give out this information to the airline of the country because the airline will simply abide by the rules of the country of destination. We know that deals are being made in the UK already between mobile operators and the government because they also want to do some tracing programs, which is how, by the way, South Korea was able to apparently have a success in this battle against a virus. They do very heavy track and tracing. They can they look at the, your entire history, who you met, who you haven't met, where you've been, to being able to isolate people that may be in danger of getting the virus, of those who might be infected without knowing it, and isolating only those ones and letting everybody else be in society. So they're using already track and tracing programs, programs that might be extended to asking everyone to download an app. This is what China is doing by using super apps like the Tencent and WeChat, etc. So in other societies, it could be like every citizen, every resident downloads an app, shares geolocalization, because this is how we can actually make sure that you are tracked and traced. I mean, why wouldn't these programs being implemented on a larger scale at destinations, at airports? Oh, you want to visit our country? Download this app, share the geolocalization data. Whilst you're here, we can track and trace you whilst you roam around our country. Huh? And then the airlines are forced to follow suit because airlines, like it is for immigration, statuses they just follow the rules of countries that's part of our 
ETAs now as visas. You know, if you've ever had problems boarding a flight because you didn't have the proper visa, the same will apply. Oh, you didn't have the right test. Oh, you, you were not recovered. Or it's not certified. Oh, we only allow recovered people. You need to have certification. Oh, we didn't get your geolocalization data. I mean, it's, it's, it's there. And before basically the grounding of the world's airlines, there were countries that were already requesting tests to entry. Cyprus, I know it's a small country. I used to live there. Cyprus said... No matter if you're a Cypriot national or if you're a foreigner, if you want to enter Cyprus, you need to show a test that tells us you don't have the virus, which obviously proves impossible because right now there's not enough tests, so you cannot just get tested and being able to fly. So basically, they lock down the island. Overblown or not, I am seeing a possibility. I'm not saying it's going to happen, but I'm seeing a possibility that these little things will be added to travel. We know that health tech technology of health. We've always been discussing how good it can be. You have your Apple Watch tracking your heart rate and so on and so forth. And you have insurance providers that will lower your premium if you're walking more than 10,000 steps a day. All these little things, when you add them up, at some point create this world when health tech dictates your movements. Can you go out of your home? Can you travel? Can you enter a country? This is not fully science fiction. Again, it depends on how long this crisis goes for. If it's three months, which I don't believe so, it can come back to normalcy quicker. However, if it drags on for 18 months and countries have to understandably open their borders to reboot economies, they might implement stuff like this. It will not be anymore a simple paper form like you see in Asia. Have you been in contact with avian flu in the past uh, 14 days, la la la, or have you been in contact with livestock? It will be like, give us your geolocalization on your phone. Are you not coming in? After all, countries like the US and Russia already ask for your social media handles. Is it really science fiction to think that these won't be added? Honestly, I'm not sure. We know that IATA, disclosure, I, I do some work for IATA. One of the biggest projects of IATA is standard around one ID, which is basically a standard that will allow to replace the boarding pass, your passport, all that permits travel. Well, within that, I could totally foresee some additional data could be implemented as to make sure that you're not sick or that you're recovered, perhaps. And I know, I know, some of you must be saying, Paul, you've been staying at home for too long, coming up with conspiracy theories. I'm asking questions. I'm laying out scenarios. I am not projecting that all this happens within two months. However, I state this is a possibility, which obviously leads to the cost, the cost of travel. If all this is added up. So is that the, the end of ultra low cost long haul travel? I don't know. Another thing that could happen, it could boost actually that ultra long travel because some countries, some super hubs might be closed or might be too difficult. Or some passengers will say, you know what, I'd rather actually go direct to a place where I'm sure I can get with our hassle. So suddenly we won't see super hubs being as prevalent as they used to be. And smaller aircraft like the Dreamliner or the 350 could actually do very, very long haul as people will want to avoid out of choice or out of necessity hubs for layovers. I mean, that will destroy the entire point of our title of this show. <laughs> Again, really guys, I'm not saying this will happen. I'm just here to lay out potential scenarios that for me at least are not completely out of the question. 
we could see travel being reshuffled because of some countries being still shut down, some other open, some tightening up rules of admissions that are, do not only are around your nationality or your residency, but also your state of health. I believe this is very much a possibility, especially if this drags on as Again, countries will want to reopen borders, will want to boost international trade again. Another trend line is automation. We know self-serve travel. We do a lot of on our phone. We already require less people interaction within an airport. Well, if we need to keep social distancing for a while, this trend line could accelerate. Well, let's do like China, when you can do an entire travel experience without ever talking to anyone, everything is facial recognition and scanning. Dubai, when I was there in February, I tried the full biometric path, as they call it. I didn't have any interaction whatsoever to go in or go out of the country. Passport scan, facial recognition in. That was it, right? So let's say that you don't even want to do passport scanning because you're touching a surface and that's probably infectious. <laughs> well, then you remove that and it's all facial recognition programming. You have all your information being stored on some servers to being able to recognize you. And there you go. We are fast tracking 2020 to 2020, which is basically one of the surprising things that is happening here with this crisis. I'm not trying to diminish all the, the pain and the hurt especially for you guys that are losing their jobs or anxious about losing their jobs. But a lot of the stuff, whether it's working from home, flexible work, remote medicine, telemedicine, you know, these biometrics, systems of automation, all this have been discussed for years. We've been discussing them on this show many, many times. And suddenly out of necessity because we don't have a choice because people are locked home, suddenly these become reality much faster. A decade happens in a few weeks. And finally, because, you know, there's so many things I could talk about and uh, this will end up being two hours of me and you must be tired. And really, if you're still listening, <laughs> I mean, not only thank you, but uh, that required a lot of courage to hear my rambling by myself here. The cost of cleaning, obviously, Delta, to take this example, announced the other day that they were increasing, like everybody, increasing, you know, their cleaning standards in their aircrafts and zones of uh, passenger interactions, which is not only to reassure passengers to still fly, but also probably a good thing to happen in, in such an environment. They call the program, I think, Delta Clean, and uh, they will fog every aircraft before every flight and disinfect everything, a bit like we explained in the last episode of an Emirates and, and all the airlines that were doing this when they were still flying. <laughs> <clears throat> that might remain a cost for a while, not only to reassure passengers, but simply could be a requirement again. You might have heard about this whole debate whether or not this virus can survive on surfaces. Apparently it can. Again, cleaning of the aircraft and other uh, zones of interactions with, with passengers. There is also this whole debate whether or not the virus can survive in the air. So, you know, when you cough, you make droplets. So basically they go down with gravity. And aerosol is this theory that it can basically sustain and fly in a way in, in the air for a little while. The data is noisy. I'm no scientist here to tell you whether or not it's the case. Interestingly, if it were to be the case, which seemed to be the case in, according to many, but again, it's too early, I was doing some research about whether or not that would impact aircrafts, obviously. So, of course, right now they all tout their ventilation systems that apparently do not allow any bad things to happen to the air in the aircraft. It's an old example, but it, I don't think it's totally irrelevant. On uh, March 14, 1977, so I know it's a long time ago, it was a 737 
that was grounded for I think uh, three to four to five hours because of some engine issues and there was no ventilation in the aircraft but it happened I think they were departing Kansas and landing in Alaska if I'm not mistaken and there was a one person that had the flu the regular flu one person had flu symptoms and within days more than 70% of the other passengers also got sick that would lead to believe that the virus a flu like virus can sustain itself in the air because if without ventilation one person sick and 70% of an aircraft get sick that could actually uh, mean something it's anecdotal i'm not a scientist i'm not an epidemiologist but the reason i was able to find this example is because this is an example that was heavily used in the whole debate about whether or not smoking should be allowed in planes as to how air circulates in a plane so this is why this example exists uh, you can find references i'm sure online as i did and whilst it's not linked to what i just said uh, alitalia who's still flying <laughs> is implementing social distancing rules within the aircraft to limit the number of passengers lufthansa had been doing the same by removing the middle seat so everybody's in business class basically <laughs> in europe and uh, strong rumors exist that japan was limiting the access to the country is requesting airlines to limit the load of passengers as well. So all this to limit infection with aircrafts, but also uh, the number of people that then need to clear the new sets of immigration rules and quarantine upon arrival. Add these two together and maybe we'll have for a while, whenever air travel starts again, limited load factors by decisions of the states or per airline wanting to reassure the public and and talking about reassurance i i, I don't do that I, I don't know if you do but I have, I have friends actually who are now uh cleaning every single part of the groceries when they are being delivered from the vegetables in some disinfectant soup i would guess and wiping out all the items separately before they uh get access to their house. I, I, I don't do that. I don't know if it's overblown. I don't know if it's crazy or I don't know if I'm naive. So now we'll be, we will be seeing uh, people, uh, I don't know, cleaning their checked-in luggage when they come to the belt or expecting airports to have cleaned them before they get to the belt. I mean, okay, this is going far too crazy this this is not what i believe will happen but it's, these are, i'm i'm literally asking myself should i should i clean the banana before actually putting it in my house now i'm i'm we're all becoming a little bit paranoid with this i thought i was one uh, a few months ago when i started thinking about this and now i'm being overtaken by everybody else <laughs> oh well i i hope i didn't create some anxiety no eat your banana bananas are always always uh, nice now, I think, I, I think I'll, I'll stop because I've done that for too long and you must be bored. I, I said I'm not sure the airline industry would ever go back. It doesn't go back to me, but will ever be the same as before. I don't think it will. I think it will be smaller. I think it will take a long time to get to levels that will make people feeling that we are back to something just because of the compounding effect of a massive economical crisis, of a massive financial crisis, of airlines probably having to to fold of travel, 
experiencing more hassle due to this, of potentially having this drag on for 6 to 12 to 18 months. I really hope, I really hope it's less. Honestly, I really do not wish any of what I'm saying about green zones and blah, blah, blah happening. I don't want to travel and have to certify some blood tests and, or, or whatever, or my geolocalization data. I was just trying to imagine what could be a new normal because as human beings we adapt to new normals very very quickly without realizing had you said to anyone no bottles of water pass security or no liquids above a certain limit or remove your shoes uh, and etc a lot of people would have uh, thought this was a joke and yet 20 years later we're still with it what I don't believe, however, and that's always the case in, in times of crisis, like a new man, a new planet will emerge, will be like completely different. That is not the case. I don't think that happens over such a short period of time with that type of crisis. Because again, here we're not talking about half of the, of the Earth dying or something. But in the same way of the trend lines that I just mentioned, if you just accelerate the trend lines, you see where they go. Change happens in longer periods, over generations. The generation everybody talks about for the past 10 years is the millennials, you know, the millennials. Sometimes we like to use that term here to poke fun of them. The millennials, that generation that creates a lot of anxiety and dreams, depending on which side of, of the debate you are. But if you look at what makes millennials, for instance, we say millennials are not loyal to brands, you know, as much as the older generation is, etc., etc., etc. All that stems from the dual crisis of 9-11 in 2001 and the financial crisis of 2008, because they were in a world where their parents or themselves were laid off very quickly after a crisis. So the company I work for has not a lot of loyalty towards me because as soon as there's a problem, they lay me off. So why would I offer my loyalty back, which created this new type of behaviors? And I'm oversimplifying for the point here because I've already talked too much meaning that the type of effects of what's happening right now may actually be seen down the line 10 to 15 years. I don't know how they will look like, but if you continue using the same trend lines of people being more aware of the cost of our human interaction with this planet, it could also mean different ways of travel and or travel having to adapt much faster than previously thought, which I would actually welcome, especially for uh, climate change. But here... I don't think anyone knows what the exact effect will be down the line, but I'm pretty sure there will be an effect of people having lived through this. Now, maybe not people from my generation, I'm 44, but people that are younger and that might now dismiss it because they're not touched, they might not die themselves and not even end up in the hospital. But the economical crisis that would follow might affect these because, you know what, most people as soon, and that's, you know, the, the crazy 20s after the Second World War, for instance, you have this feeling of freedom. Let's imagine that we're being locked down for six months, for nine months. I, I don't believe nine months, but let's, let's put our minds to six months. You might disagree. Feel free to. The first thing you will want to do after six months is travel, is going out to restaurants, is having a good time with your friends, is, is dating, whatever it is you want to do. So there will be like an outburst of positive energy after that, which will have a certain effect on travel. But again, dampened probably with the downturn economy, which means less means to do so, but it will create this boon. Hence, my belief that the actual changes that some people are dreaming, like tomorrow the world will be greener, etc. I'm not dismissing this. I'm just saying it will happen 
much later. There's always a lag between the effect of the change, the profound the undercurrent of change. At least this is what I've been seeing with the research I've been doing for clients for years now. And I want to be clear, I'm not saying that out of vertish signaling. I hate that word. But of course, I've, you know, I'm guilty of being that jet setter whilst talking about climate change. Come on. I mean, I'm the first worst example. And values, more often than not, uh, at least debating values, are at times a very rich people-person problem. Although when you think about it, we have cities sinking or airports sinking. So there is an effect, I believe, in climate change. And thus, there will be changes happening. And this might be an accelerant. Last but not least, last but not least, to me, it's very important to me, beyond travel, beyond international travel, this, this connection of cultures, of people with different creeds, nationalities, ethnicities, this ability to, to meet everyone. And the big question for me is, will globalization be different? That's, that's the last trend line. We've seen globalization change already. We know it's happening already. And surely we've realized through that crisis a certain fragility in the system, because as soon as one country went down, China, supply chains were disrupted and now the rest is going down there's a domino effect there's fragility into a system so that will clearly make us change how do we change international trade how do we adapt to a, a reality because again after every crisis we do on top of it comes a question about the essence of globalization some people are already trying to use it as more ways to close up and that personally of course with my multiple backgrounds, my international perspective, some would call me a globalist, fine, whatever, please, <laughs> please insult me, it's not an insult for me. This question is, for me, the, the big one. I don't think the world will unglobalize, but surely, certainly, is going to be a different globalization. And that, to me, will be both fascinating, a bit scary, as international travel will be different, globalization will be different. But for now, but for now, but for now... Again, I want to restrict back to what I started with, which is, I hope you're fine. I hope you're taking care of yourself. I hope you're taking care of each other. I hope I didn't create too much anxiety, but some of the theories and some of the explanations I've given in this podcast, for I really want to empathize. And, and I say that with all my heart. Uh, I'm empathizing with, of course, my friends, my close friends, my family, those who are already suffering, those who are anxious. I hope you can manage your anxiety or find ways, will find ways to manage this anxiety. If you have, if you don't have it, it's fine as well. Please come back and listen to more regular episodes that we, we will probably do after this. I promise I, I won't do one of those soon because it's uh, it's no fun not having anyone to interact with. But I, I, I'm, I'm an optimist person, you know that. We can fix this. We will fix this. We will win this. But that doesn't change the fact that right now you might be experiencing negative thoughts. And I really, I really want you to be kind to yourself, be kind to each other and take care of yourself. For me, after this, I don't know. I mean, of course, I'm not traveling now. I believe, as I just said, that we will travel again for sure. Uh, I like good resets. And by the way, that might influence some of the stuff I've said in this podcast. We all come in every crisis, in every judgment we make. We all come with our own baggage, with our own biases. And I have my own biases. I fully admit that. I like good resets. I've been through resets in the past. I've crashed startups and restarted again. So I'm I'm not saying I'm built for that, but I kind of love this kind of roller coaster type of life. It's not for everyone, and I'm not saying that in any condescending way, but I understand that the anxiety levels of having to go through a roller coaster like the one we're going right now is not felt the same way to everyone. And again, I'm, I'm privileged for my situation. I'm losing clients. I will lose some clients, but I'm probably more used to this. And sorry here, I'm not, I'm really not neither condescending or gloating, but truly trying to empathize with those of you that are suffering in ways that I cannot because 
because as I said at the top of the show, we all suffer in different ways. We all cope in different ways and they're all valid. Yours is as valid as mine. And if you hate what I said during this podcast, it's fine. Yeah, perhaps, perhaps after 12 years now of intense travels, not that I didn't travel before, as you've heard in the stories I started this show with, perhaps I will travel less. I kept saying that if you've been a listener to this this show, maybe it's another chapter. I'm not saying I'm going to stop this show. I still want to talk to Alex. I'm not saying I'm not going to travel anymore because I like to travel, but perhaps I will travel differently. I always, uh, I, I keep boring you with that. I always took every single travel, every single air travel as the last one. My last one, if it were today, would have been a very nice uh, first class pack from Dubai to to London. So yeah, what can I complain about? But this isn't the end. And to say that we don't have a choice, to say that we will lose this is a failure of imagination. We will fix this. That's what we do as humans. And fear and anxiety are incompetent teachers. Uh, hope is a much better teacher. Sometimes it's fluffy, but we can go forward. We will go forward. We are resilient, no matter if we're anxious right now, if you are anxious right now. My personal take, and that's very personal, and that's why I'm staying home and just doing my one authorized run every day around the block. It's a bit boring uh, listening to some of the other podcasts about aviation. So thank you guys for still putting them out. You, you're great. Is that one of the point of life for me is that if I can save somebody else's life, somebody else will save mine. And that's the whole point. That's why we're here to save each other. Mortality gives some meaning to life and travel clearly adds to the flavor. I've always, I don't know how to say that without sounding stupid, but all I see is kindness. When I meet somebody new, when I met some of you guys, I only see kindness. I only see smartness. I only see generosity. I'm immensely curious. This is why I travel. This is why I want to see people. This is why I fell in love with the machines that allows us to do that. I like greatness of spirit. And this is what I see. I'm too much of an optimist. This is probably why I believe with all my soul and all my heart that we will fix this and that travel will be all right. It will be a different type of travel. And I know that guys you that work in the travel industry, guys that you that want to work in the travel industry will do everything in your power to make this travel happen again. I know that I trust you. I know you are the best guys. And please be our heroes, you guys in travel, when, when we're able to travel back. And all of you, everyone, try to see kindness as well in others. Here I'm being condescending. Try to see kindness in others in these times. Stay curious, even if it's from home, and see greatness of spirit. People are great. You are great. We will fix this all together. And this is what I believe as a voyager, as an explorer. I want to see greatness. And greatness, greatness, well, right now, is right there. You can see it. So, like many of you, last night, I clapped for five minutes to the NHS, our healthcare system here. I know clapping is just a signal, but I clapped. I shouted as my neighborhood erupted. And uh, right now, you guys in the front lines in healthcare are my heroes. You are my heroes and everybody who helps them doing what they're doing, having these difficult times trying to save lives. You are our heroes. You know, when I moved in 2012 to London, we're a few months away from the Olympics. And there was this feeling, perhaps I imagined it, but this feeling of everybody coming together and going through one goal. And yeah, it was symbolic, but this is a time when we have to be together. This is a time when all av geeks, like all of you guys and people in the industry, people outside the industry that love what you guys do in the industry, we all have to come together. Um, 
I might have been crying alone on that uh, seat 1C when I learned that my father had just passed away, but quickly it all became light. And the light was his light that he passed on to me that was able to carry and I still carry. That friend who got knifed in San Jose de Costa Rica in 1997 when he was going out with that girl. Well, you know what? He ended up marrying that girl. They have three kids and they're still happily together and they're still my best friends. That promise I made to the uncle, the Chilean uncle Renato, to visit his home country, Chile, that he was talking me all night long during my jet lag. Well, Renato, I did visit Chile. I did go to Chile in 2011. And that summer of 1980, that shiny 747 that I saw, that was hope. That shuttle on top of it, it hadn't even seen space yet, but I had seen it. I had seen that future. I knew the future would never be the same for me when I saw that 747 and that space shuttle. And it will be a bright, shiny, chromey, laser-beaming future. We will fix this. Chin up. Be kind. Stay home. We're together. Happy travels.